This is an ABC podcast. Wow. That's amazing. Oh, I'm walking inside the centurion tree. I'm right in the middle of one of the tallest flowering plants in the world. And it's silent. I'm looking up through the heart of the tree to the darkness. But there's light filtering through a hole in the in the trunk. It's completely hollow. And you can see the scars of fire here on the inside too. And you can smell the soot. But it's still alive. Natasha Mitchell here in Lutruwita, Tasmania, this week and next for Science Friction on the lands of the Palawa people. If trees could talk, what do you think they might tell us? And would we be willing to listen? What a mighty, mighty old girl this is. So we've just trekked up the hill and we are standing underneath the branches of possibly the very tallest flowering plant on Earth tallest tree in the southern hemisphere. It's called Centurion. It's a eucalyptus regnans here in the southern forest of Tasmania. We measure it at just over 100 meters. It was the first measurements made over 100 meters outside of California. There's been some other candidates since there, including one particular individual tree in Borneo in the north. This is ecologist and tree guide, Yoav Daniel Barnes. This tree is probably 350 to 400 years old. But if you listen really carefully, you could hear stories of human travel and landscape change and climate change. And I don't know if we could put it into human words, but it happens very slowly. But it is reacting to changes in the world around it. We are in an area that's had quite a bit of forest harvest around, and it's, it's a miracle this one's here at all. Because of these fires, I don't take it for granted that any one of these individual trees will still be standing in the years to come. So that really brings me a sense of urgency and mission to learn as much as we can and pay as close attention as we can to some of these old trees while they're still on the planet with us. Yoav runs an outfit called Giant Tree Expeditions in Tasmania, although he's less about how big trees get and more about the stories they can tell us and how closely those stories are interconnected, interwoven with our own. And that's what we're musing about this week on Science Friction, the connections between them and us, trees and humans. Just, just look at your thumbs. Your thumbs were designed to hold onto a branch. It's, it's deep. It's deep in our body. It's... We're forest creatures, and so much of the Earth's landscape is covered by trees and forests that it's fundamentally as part of our planet as the water ocean or the, the bare rock. And it's, it's the most structurally complex, and in that complexity is, is so many elements of life and meaning. We ignore plants because they move and develop in a different time scale. It's very easy for us to identify with a puppy. You know, there are people who identify with birds, but plants, we don't see them moving. 
We don't see them changing. We don't see them responding. And so we sort of often relate to them just as sculptures. We have plant blindness. We are blind to their complexity and to the beauty in their biology. Plant geneticist Professor Daniel Shamovitz is author of What a Plant Knows, A Field Guide to the Senses. It's this mind-blowing read about the ways plants sense the world around them in surprisingly similar ways to us. So sight, smell, touch, taste, even memory. They use all of these in order to survive and to thrive. When Daniel Shamovitz started his career in plant biology, he was determined to buck family tradition. I was going to be pre-med in university. Uh, my father's a physician. My three uncles were physicians. My sister's a physician. I have three cousins who are physicians. It's one of those families that I was genetically programmed <laughs> to be a physician. I was going to do everything possible in my research and in my studies to not be connected to human biology. I'm the black sheep of the family. <laughs> I, I was running as far away as human biology. You know, I was going to feed the world, not deal with disease, not deal with anything connected whatsoever. But what did Steinbeck say the best laid plans of mice and men? Turned out his experiments with plants started to shed light on all sorts of ways that plant biology is similar to human biology. He discovered a key set of genes involved in how plants differentiate between light and dark and adjust their growth accordingly. And then it was found that the same genes were involved in our biological clock too and how we respond to light. He even found himself exploring their connection to cancer, specifically leukaemia, so he just couldn't escape human biology if he tried. But despite all the similarities, there is a really fundamental difference between plants and animals that we cannot ignore. The biggest difference between a plant and an animal is that plants are literally rooted in one place. They can't escape. If you're in an environment that you don't like, no water, no food, no friends, temperature is wrong, whatever, a virus, you can escape. You can run away. But think about that poor tree. It can't move. And because of that, it has to be much more in tune to its environment, much more sensitive to it, and then change its development, change its physiology in response. That's a much more complex response than just running away. And that's why plants genetically are more complex than most animals. They have many more genes. But we often fail to recognise this complexity, don't we? And partly because of the very thing that makes plants and trees more genetically complex, that they're rooted in the earth. So as Daniel Shamovitz suggests, we see them as somehow sedentary and unmoving, unresponsive, or a little like a mossy stone is how German forester Peter Verlieben describes it which is why readers were so astonished by his best-selling books, The Hidden Life of Trees and The Heartbeat of Trees. (laughs) Yeah. Since the Age of Enlightenment, we look at nature like a ranking, and we have humans on top, then we have higher animals, lower animals, higher plants, lower plants. The more we know about nature, about other species, the more we know that this is a mistake. And he thinks we even need to rethink what we mean by intelligence when we consider trees. Being intelligent doesn't mean to have a big, big brain. For example, trees have millions of root tips, and in these root tips there are brain-like processes going on. They have even the same, not similar, the same 
neurotransmitters for signaling. Many cells communicate with electric signals. You don't need a neuron to have that. And a brain is a clear organ that has many neurons connected together. So, of course, a plant doesn't have a brain. But plants still compute. Plants still make decisions. You know, a plant is inundated with signals of sun and gravity and insects and smells and temperature and being shaded or not being shaded 24-7 every single second. And the plant has to change its physiology and its architecture in order to be uniquely suited for that environment. And it does all of this integration in the absence of a brain. You know, we don't know how, how plants integrate signals. I mean, there's lots of theories, but we don't know how all the integration occurs. So that just goes to show that a brain is one evolutionary adaptation for integration, but it's not the only one. But you do need a brain to ponder that question. I've very often heard people who said, ah, trees are doing the same things than we And uh, I say, no, it's just the other way around. We are doing the same things. Trees are much older. Trees are on this planet since 300 million years. And we are very new species on this planet, 300,000 years. And we are standing on the shoulders of older species, which are here much longer. So I don't want to say that trees are similar to humans. And they are not writing books. They don't make broadcasts. They make other things, but they are something like intelligent and that they are not just working according to their genetic codes and they are not like a bio-robot. They are individuals with different characters. And Yoav Daniel Barnes is helping us to get to know some of these different characters. A small group of us have met at the Tahoon Airwalk site next to the energetic Huon River about an hour and a half from Nipaluna or Hobart. And uh, to my delight, the native laurel, Anopterus glandulosus, with its dark green, gently serrated leaves, is starting to flower here. So gorgeous. Yoav is asking us to imagine that we're sitting on this laurel and we're the size of an insect. Imagine you're this big. And then start looking around at the plants around you. Imagine you're this big and you're on this laurel leaf and you're bouncing up and down and you hop into the flower right here. And then you abseil down and you walk into the moss. Remember, you're this big. The reason we call this a giant tree and we just sort of ignore the shrubs around us is because we are huge animals. But if you remember, you are small as a little mite, each one of these places is a giant landscape waiting to be explored. With the help of Yoav's experienced eye, we are starting to really see these trees as individuals. Hewan pines with their toes dipping into the river, stringy barks dramatically shedding their skins, southern sassafras with their dainty white blooms and the stunning Antarctic beaches. And to understand a little bit about what they might have witnessed in their lives, because we're starting to read the signs and scars on their skins. As it gets older, it starts to get its own specific structures, these furrows in its base hollows in the upper surface of the tree where water drains in, mushrooms can sprout, or snapped tops. So when you see an old tree, some of what it's expressing is its genetic heritage, and some of it is chance, chance occurrence. And that's almost exactly the same as all of the interesting things you've done in your own life. As you get older, you become more your own person. 
Whereas if you go and hang out with a bunch of kindergartners, they're all talking about the same things and they all watch the same cartoons and the amount of variation in their lives is less because they just haven't had as much time to go their own paths. I wonder what was growing around it. And yet we live amongst these individuals, these trees, and give very little thought to the depth of lives they've lived, the breadth of what they've witnessed. Across sometimes millennia, Tasmania has some of the oldest living trees on the planet. We don't actually see plants, right? So we are fixated in seeing them as objects, and objects are just the commodities, you know, that you can use, you can take, move around, do whatever you want. Marine scientist turned plant biologist Dr Monica Gagliano is author of a provocative biography about her life and work with plants called Thus Spoke the Plant. She's a research associate professor at Southern Cross University where she investigates plant behaviour and plant intelligence. But we don't ever consider them as in their own right, as beings that have the right to be here. So we feel, for example, that we can clear a forest just because. And we don't consider the idea that maybe that forest, regardless of all the benefits that it can give us, it's got its own life and it's got its own right to be where it is. The right to be. Is a tree a being? Many indigenous knowledge keepers in different cultures say yes, of course, as does Monica Gagliano. And that's partly because she's sat down with traditional practitioners around the world who use plants in their practices in various ways. Starting in the Amazon lowlands of Peru, where she had this extraordinary encounter with an individual tropical tree. The practice is uh, in Peru is called dieta and dieta is simply a term that indicates this process of quite extreme isolation and um, you might ingest a cold or hot concoction made out of this plant. And I should qualify here, this is not necessarily an hallucinogenic plant or this work can be done with any plant. The sun plants are very, very good teachers and that's how they call them. Sitting in this space basically is like the same as when you go and do a meditation retreat. You know, you eat certain food, you don't really talk to anyone, you don't touch anyone, you are on your in your own space and you are very inward focused. And it's an intense experience. It is. And uh, and in that space, the same as you might get insight when you're doing your meditation retreat, the same you are listening to the conversation, part of the conversation with this plant that you are ingesting, which literally means you're taking the plant in and the conversation is internal because you and the plant are inside you. Monica says that experience directly inspired some of her subsequent scientific experiments with plants back in the lab in Australia. I don't think it's for everyone, uh, but when I started walking down this path, I did feel that these were two worlds. And in fact, to the point that I kept my personal experiences very, very privately guarded because I was trying to do science and I am doing science and I didn't want the science community and my colleagues to, to feel that the science was compromised because it wasn't. I had to be even more scientific than ever because I knew I was threading a very fine line. And in the process of doing that, the line blurred. And in the process of that, I realized that I wasn't walking two worlds. I was just walking the world. 
Not an orthodox inspiration for a scientist in the Western tradition, but another way, I guess, of getting to know trees as individuals. Monica's gone on to design, conduct and publish various scientific experiments, probing all sorts of extraordinary questions, whether plants respond to sound, whether they make decisions, whether they remember experiences or encounters. And she concludes that they do all of these things, but more research is needed. And you can hear a little bit more about her work on ABC Radio National's Big Ideas podcast from last week. Look for their episode, What Plants Can Teach Us. So let's head back to the forest by the Huon River to consider the idea of individual trees being witnesses to important events in history. We're looking right at the blackened stems of a giant old stringy bark. It's got little re-sprouts popping out all along its stem, which are hoping to take advantage of the new conditions. The ultimate witness eucalyptus tree I've ever seen was the one growing at Hiroshima Castle, which survived the atomic weapon. And it was only 700 meters from the blast at Hiroshima. And there's photographs of it just after standing as these two twigs. I think it's a eucalyptus citri uh, meliodora from New South Wales. So these blackened sticks were just standing there. Fast forward 70 years, when I visited it, it was a quite happy twisted eucalyptus tree that had re-sprouted happily. And strangely enough, I was the first eucalyptus biologist to ever speak to these caretakers in Hiroshima that the eucalyptus tree was actually a fire-adapted tree. So that individual's life experience tells us that these trees can actually survive fires to the extent of an atomic weapon and re-sprout. Wow. That's cool. mm-hmm. Trees are witnesses to the dramatically changing world around them. And the trees in the forests that Peter Verlieben managed for Germany's Forestry Commission for decades have in a way been beneficiaries of his own massive personal change. How do you think that you used to relate to trees, Peter? I think I was more like a tree butcher because we learned at university mm-hmm. that trees are mainly raw material for the timber industry and uh, we learned how to plant them, how to grow them straight. We were trained to judge the sawmill qualities on living trees and when you do this several hundred times a day you just see trees as uh, products and I thought this was okay because we were taught that using trees are good for to fight climate change And we weren't trained to see wonders in the forest. But then he started on a path that led him to writing his book, The Hidden Life of Trees. And one day, uh, 20 years back, I always felt in my heart that there's an emotional gap and that looking at forests like this is like looking at animals in industrial animal keeping. It's an extraordinary thing to call yourself a former tree butcherer. We all benefit from the resources of trees, but how powerful was this individual reckoning that you confronted within yourself about how you related to trees and how you determined their value on the planet? Yeah, there are many, many benefits we have from trees. Uh, Fortunately, trees have the same goals like we have. Trees don't like it too hot. Trees don't like it too dry. The human strategy is to walk away, but plants have to stay. And then they begin to change their environment. And trees, for example, as a forest, not a single tree. A single tree knows instinctively, I'm not a forest. And such a tree, uh, therefore, 
supports the surrounding trees to strengthen uh, the forest, to make it able to make the own local weather. And we know from satellite research in Germany that intact forest, German forest, can um, cool down the local temperatures around about 10 degrees Celsius on hot summer days. They can create their own rain clouds and make it wetter. And it's wonderful. And they are not doing this for us. They are doing this for themselves. Peter Vuleben describes these straggly, struggling trees that line many of our urban streets as being kind of like delinquent kids raised without their mother tree and isolated. They don't learn the lessons of the forest. They don't chemically communicate through the so-called wood-wide web, the network of fungi connecting their roots, and so they fail to thrive or live as long. It's a bit like us, isn't it? We need each other. Daniel Shamovitz. There was a study that came out in the early 1980s. It was the first study that showed that trees can communicate with each other by volatile chemicals. When one leaf is bitten by an insect, it gives off a volatile chemical, a smell into the air, which is then picked up by the neighboring tree. And then that causes the tree to start making chemicals which are poisonous to the insects. And when this was published, the popular press loved it. They were talking about, you know, a tree's bark is better than its blight. Um, You know, trees scream, the others respond. Unfortunately, a lot of scientists thought that the research was overinterpreted. But what's the difference between pseudoscience and real science? Pseudoscience, you won't let the facts get in the way of what you know to be right. Whereas a scientist is always ready for his results to be checked by someone else. And the work done by Ian Baldwin and and Schultz in 1983 has now been replicated in hundreds of laboratories. So we know that plants can communicate through volatile signals in the air. We know that roots communicate through, through chemicals released through the soil. There's even reports that plants can differentiate between themselves, their offspring, and other species. Now, that's bizarre. That roots of a mother plant will not go into the soil of its children, but will attack the roots of a neighboring plant. Isn't that scary? That's astounding, isn't it? To this day, we don't know the basis of that. What's important is to realize that plants are incredibly biologically adept and complex because they need to survive. And and it's incumbent upon us to understand this because we are 100% dependent on the survival of plants on this planet. You know, everything I've done today is plant dependent. You know, I woke up and continued breathing oxygen, which came from plants. I drank a cup of coffee. There's 20 trees in Brazil that supply me with all the coffee I need for one year. You know, then I had a plant-based breakfast, but even if I'd had meat, the meat would have been fed plants. I went in a car, which unfortunately is burning plants that died billions of years ago. And then, you know, I'm wearing plants which were harvested in Egypt to get cotton. And I'm sitting on a wooden chair, which comes from plants. So, you know, everything we do is dependent on plants. You know, so we need to understand how they're going to survive in this rapid climate change. These trees are old beings and they have lessons to teach us of resilience, surviving extremes and Especially as we find our climate crisis challenges come up, we're going to need to learn all the lessons we can and have all of the emotional and physical and biological tools we can find from any source. And giant old trees are a very obvious place to look. The stories that it could tell us 
probably would surprise us because we keep finding new ways to ask those questions. In the same way that all those stories that your great-grandparents never had a chance to tell you because your lives didn't intersect or you never asked, or we didn't have the ability to record them so well. In some ways, what I'm trying to do with these forests is like what you are doing here with the microphone is trying to gather those stories. And the phrase that comes to mind sometimes is what Mark Cargwardine, the wildlife biologist, wrote, that the state of wildlife biology is like running through a burning library trying to write down the names of the books. If we don't record the stories of these trees, what, what is lost? We don't know. We don't know what is lost. If you forgot to ask, I mean, what did my grandmother do in Paris when she arrived there as a refugee? I never found out, and I'll never know. And thanks to Yoav Daniel Barnes, Daniel Shamovitz, Peter Verlieben, Monica Gagliano, and to the trees, of course. More info about all their work on the Science Friction website next week in If Trees Could Speak, Unreal Science taking the pulse of trees, counting millennia of tree rings, capturing their breath to reveal what trees are telling us right now about our rapidly changing climate. And the vote is still on for National Science Week for your favourite native tree. It is now down to just 10 finalists. I love them all, goddammit. You can vote at abc.net.au slash trees. You can find me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. I'm posting lots of tree pics there. Hashtag OzFaveTree. That's O-Z-A-U-S. Science Friction is produced by myself and Lisa Needham. I reckon I'm off to climb one. A tree, of course. See ya. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.